This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. When we're talking about the antinomian disputations, I'm kind of breaking these up into topics where we start by talking about repentance and then move to thinking more expressly about the simul as the simul. But you can never um, you know, tear these things apart as it were because they are so connected. But before we move on from repentance to thinking about the simul in a more focused way, um, I want to recommend that we um, look at page 88 to 90. Um, and just take a couple minutes to read that um, as an example of how Luther thought about pastoral care and the work of law gospel in repentance. Could you name the sections? Yeah, that is section, uh, it's the second argument of the second disputation. Okay. So it's just 88 um, to basically the top of 90. As I was looking um, <clears throat> through my notes and just sort of collating things into under various topics and divisions and whatnot, um, it struck me that this was probably one of the places where Luther talks most specifically about pastoral care. Um, and there, it's, it's just curious to me how he describes it, because what is this pastoral care all about here? Um, what does it, it look like? Consolation. Yeah. It's, it's imitating and repeating the word that Christ says to you. Um, it says, you know, the de death comes over you, yet Christ cries out right away. I am the death of death, the hell of hell, the devil of the devil. Do not fear, my son, I have won. And that's all you're telling people, just over and over again, speaking that into their lives. Um, and the depth to which you are speaking that, which he talks about the, the top of the page 88, he says, Behold, you are saddened, you are afflicted, you have been led into hell by the law and by your black cholera that torments you. Um, I, don't, I don't know what other words he could use to describe just the utter depths of the person who is lost and forsaken and condemned. The rhubarb of the gospel. Mm. And what's particularly interesting to me here is how he says, when these people come to you, when these wretched consciences come to you, it is not necessary to spur on the law. You know, as pastors who follow a law gospel distinction, um, <clears throat> kind of what we were talking about earlier, um, there can be a sense where you've always got to speak both, but it's all about discerning when that has already been spoken to the person, and so it's not your work to do that anymore. Um, and that will be a difficult task, but, um, <clears throat> but all he says is, for such people who are tormented like this, be on the lookout that you might console them. For they will say, God hates me, he's forgotten me, he doesn't want me. No, indeed, he does want you. 
and commands you that you hope in him. Yeah. Yep. And as Luther would always do, he draws this particularly back to the office of preaching. Um, it is for this very reason why God has instituted the preaching office in the church, namely so that one brother might teach the other and wherever necessary console him. So can you kind of flesh out what you mean or you think that Luther is meaning by preaching office? Mm. Tell uh, me, be uh, specific about that, would you? I, I would have to follow, have to make kind of two distinctions. One is that we are all given the command and the ability as Christians to speak and give the word to each other. It, you know, it's about the mutual conversation and consolation of the brethren. That's the sort of traditional word for it. Um, so insofar as that is, we all have the ability to utter absolution to one another. Um, if there's not a pastor around to do that for you, um, you find your Christian friend, and he does that for you. You, know? you find the next person who will do it. Um, and you, as a Christian, if you're ordained or not, you do that for other people because you don't need to wait around for someone else to do it. Um, the distinction that Lutherans typically make for ordination is just that in the church you need that one person who has been set aside and called for the sake of order um, so that um, there will be order and peace in the church, just like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, and that's sort of one of the main Impetuses for impetuses. Impetuses. Impetai. Impetai. <laughs> I honestly I didn't actually think it is impetuses. Impetuses. I think it is. I don't I don't I don't I don't like that at all. <laughs> that is an impetus. Um, for the for the ordained office of, of preaching. Uh, but I think when he's talking about preaching, it's a it's a thing that applies to all but even more specifically to pastors, like it's turned up to a higher degree because everybody else has other vocations to do in life, but as a pastor, this is your vocation. Okay, All right. I'm gonna beg to differ just a little bit. Sure, I yeah. I want clarification. In our church, we have five elders, uh -huh. four of which are secular, employed, and employed. Mm -hmm. but They have been set aside by our church to fulfill that office of elder. Right. My question is, and then of course we have a pastor. He's, he's, but all these men have been ordained to be elders. Mm -hmm. So what is it? Is it both and or both? In your opinion? I'm trying to... to to work out the distinction. Um, it's a, it turns on a difference of polity and why yeah. certain offices are where they are and what they're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, I know it looks like in Presbyterianism. Yeah. I mean, I think we would all say that you are given the gospel to, to speak to others um, in the church, but that that one, that one person or those two or three people who have been ordained and called and set aside specifically for the office of preaching. Um, is, is that distinction 
Are you saying that should be there or should Am I buying it or not? I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know. I'm, the question, I, I, I think, for example, <clears throat> I am ordained uh, in our church, mm -hmm. but I'm not the vocational pastor. People ask me these pastoral questions, mm -hmm. and I don't want to make it, you know, I am all the time doing this, helping mm -hmm. in that way, but I don't see myself as any special person, mm -hmm. because my wife is probably a whole lot better at it than I, mm -hmm. and yet she, and she does it quite well, Right, but... People are better off talking with her. She has no ordination whatsoever. Mm. And so I, I just, I don't see the huge distinction that Luther is making here, or if he is even making a distinction, because he says one, on one side of his mouth, you speak to your brother because you're, you can do that. But on the other hand, he seems to, or at least some seem to say that he is holding out a ordained person in a higher at, at a higher plane I like, more responsibility I, I like to see it as a distinction um, in Acts and the Epistles where uh, in Colossians we're all ministering the word to one another but let the word of Christ dwell among you richly priesthood of all believers we've all got that ability to preach to one another and yet even in Acts, there's a visualization of a distinction of a certain kind of gifted person within that church that's uniquely called out to right. particularly proclaim the word. I mean, and you're talking about the the the, uh, the apostles that were called to teach and not what yeah, the and they were getting bogged down, so yeah. they were like, they're, "Gotta create deacons, free them up, gotta get the people to serve tables." And yeah, and and so there's some sort of unique gifting for a preeminent preacher, mm -hmm. you know, not not higher in rank, but just a specific call, a preacher who's yeah. called specifically well, to... Well, maybe that's what he's saying. Yeah, I know, and I would never imply that there's any sort of ontological change in no, the person that. who's ordained. I understand that. Yeah. I'm just trying to, I'm just asking the question because it's always been something I've wondered about. Yeah, you know, the way I thought about it in spatial terms is... In Presbyterian world, we talk about a minister of word and sacrament. Um, pervasively, everybody can be a minister of word um, to some degree. Only the ordained are ministers of sacrament. That includes teaching and ruling elders. Your distinction in your church is the same in Presbyterian. A teaching elders, a pastor, ruling elder is just, uh, no, I don't say just an elder, but an elder who rules but does not need to teach the word to somebody. So the community calls out both its both kind of elders and says, we want you to be our people to give us word and sacrament. Whereas the pastors give word and sacrament, the elders really just give sacrament, so to speak. And then I think about it in spatial terms here. The pastor is set off to the side. The pastor is set apart, but not set above. Hmm. Oh, out of among us, we're asking you to do this thing in us. That's kind of, I think, um, is Luther, did Luther, Luther say that uh, individual non-ordained members can't, yeah, members of the church can absolve sins? 
just Christians who are not ordained to be ministers absolve sins? What's Luther's belief on that? Because, like, I know my, like, for instance, my daughter, mm -hmm. she's a, I believe she's a Christian, and uh, she could tell me upright, left, and down that I'm forgiven or whatever. But in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, mm. you're, you're a little girl and you don't really know <laughs> everything, you know, a lot. But, and so, but when I hear it from the preacher, it's much different. Mm. It's like, this is a guy who's been set apart by God and the people who spends his life in the Word of God and is speaking, not just that, those are just some tangible ways. But also, you know, the invisible ways that God has is ministering through him. You know. Yeah. So I mean, to me, there's got to be a, a key distinction. Uh, I just want to know what Luther believes. Does Luther say that you know this distinction exists, or, or what? Huh. That's a really good question. Um... Especially if we open up the, the whole arena of Office of the Keys. Yeah, yeah. And like street preaching, for, uh, for instance, you know, these people who just like kind of take it upon themselves to go out and preach the word of God, so to speak, and they're just condemning everybody. And it's like, wow, you're taking the keys to yourself, and are you even, do you even have that authority? Mm. You know? But it seems like a pretty legitimate implication of this whole, a particular view of priesthood of all believers is that, you know, everybody has the office, has the keys. Right. I can go and say, no matter how jacked up your theology is, you can, <laughs> you know. You know, I can't, I'm, there's not a place for me in Luther that's coming to mind about this distinction right here. I'll tell you the way that it works itself out in our liturgies is that um, whenever an ordained minister is doing a rite of confession, for example, um, the rite of confession and absolution at the beginning of our Sunday worship or private confession, <clears throat> at those times the rubric says, you announce, I forgive you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whenever it's for something like Vespers, evening prayer, uh, various other things like that, where um, a lay person could be leading it, those rubrics declare a general forgiveness of sins. I, declare, I, I tell you that you have been forgiven um, in Jesus Christ. Um, so, it, I mean, at least the way it works out in our liturgy is there is a distinction um, between who is and isn't announcing the absolution in itself, but all are telling of the forgiveness. So, that's about all, all I would feel confident saying on that issue. It's just the, the way that the tradition has, devel has developed that distinction. But the thing to go back to is just that <clears throat> when, for example, the Augsburg Confession justifies um, why you need a, a person to be ordained, it does not take recourse to special powers or abilities or some sort of ontological change, but the fact that we need one person to be here to speak this um, for the sake of peace and hearing a clear word. Yeah? Is there a confessional? In Lutheran churches, are there confessions? You mean like within the rite of confession and absolution? No, like a, oh. like a booth? Yeah. Or maybe oh. not a booth, but just <coughs> is that thing 
does it exist and can you meet with the pastor on a regular basis mm -hmm. to confess and have your sins individually yeah. forgiven? Yeah. If <clears throat> there's a lot of not all Lutheran churches follow this, but our confessional documents say that we retain private confession and forgiveness. Um, so some pastors will offer it. They'll you know, have something in the bulletin saying, if you want this, if you desire this. Yeah. Um, and I think the power of that is that the, the right of confession and absolution in the service is announcing it to everyone. But in the private confession and absolution, you're hearing it just to you. Um, so there is a, there's a movement in Lutheranism sort of correlating with various liturgical renewal um, to make private confession more of a central practice again. You don't go into a confessional, though. You typically are either just sitting in a chair or you're at a, you know, what's called a pray-do. Uh, so. Would a Lutheran consider that sacramentally? Capital S? Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, that's another thing. If you ask different Lutherans whether we have two or three sacraments. But that would be the third? Or I thought marriage might be the third. No. No? no. Okay. Um, marriage for us, no. It's not, it's not a sacrament. Um, but private sac confession might be. It's either, yeah, baptism and Lord's Supper are the sacraments, or baptism, Lord's Supper, and confession and absolution as a working out of baptism in, in, in your life. And that's how it would be conceived of. So it's kind of tied to you baptism. You marriage and the pastor needs to be able to marry. The lay person can marry. Is that right? Yeah, I just didn't know. So from these pages, can I introduce a please, player? Please do. You know, little L law, big L law, and then phenomena like Norton Weber and some other people like that. It's a combination. You know, page 88. Um, to you will come wretched consciences when the devil is attacked in an extraordinary way without giving any rest. Here it's not necessary to spur on the law since they are more than sufficiently touched by the power of the law and forbid and terrify. Same things that Corey read. They say, God hates me. He's forgotten me. He doesn't want me. No, indeed. He does want you and command you through mind, St. Paul's mouth, that you open him and believe Christ has died. So it's wondering where the, trying to work this out, where they, what law did they feel terrified by? Because if they didn't come to you, they didn't hear that law through the preacher's mouth, what the law would it be besides a little of law? And then how this plays out with a congregation like Nadia Boltzweber, which I'm, I haven't read her stuff since second hand to me. You're just bedraggled, addicted, tattooed, dysfunctionally sexual, all sorts of things. Mm. Where does this play out? As one of the pulling in for conversation. Are you saying, Gil, that you I mean, you think Big L only comes out of the preacher's mouth? That is no, no, no. Well, I said that a minute ago, um, <clears throat> just to set up the conversation. Okay. Because it's to help us, help me, help me, help me clarify, what is this little L law? We put Mockingbird into the conversation a few times. That they mm. can't really speak of Mockingbird monolithically, but that they sort of trump up. Um, I mean, is it not 
I think of Big L Law as being written on our hearts in a way that is constantly just murmuring around in us, accusing us, uh, conscience or whatever you want to call it, and maybe I'm totally off. But therefore, even little L Laws within someone's own heart can get moved around toward feeling like, and even hearing Big L Law, precisely because the Decalogue is written on our heart. Mm. Um, and so without maybe a, an external preacher, I don't know. Fair? Weird? And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before the break a little bit and saying <clears throat> if you are talking about little L law in a sermon without drawing out how that relates or if that relates or why that relates to the big L, um, you probably aren't doing your job because there might not be any other voices in a person's life which would make that clear, um, such that whatever the little L is stirring up would, would make sense, um, would, would not just drive them to despair, as it were, but despair that, that shows need. This is not an assumption. What is big L law? I've talked to some Old Testament folk, professors, take great exception at throwing around the Reformation, even throwing around the word law, within the law, strict law, gospel paradigm. They have no um, way out of not leave. They're not very patient with that. Right. That's um, true. Right. Know, law has a very nuanced, very specific uh, understanding, especially in the Torah. Um, and that's the law to which the scripture always speaks. And so there is no such thing. I think they would say a little bit of law or the way that law gospel is sometimes misappropriated by Luther and his progeny. Right. So I think that's probably fair. I wish we could find a place in here where Luther starts making those distinctions, though, because I remember in my Romans class in seminary, they said, Paul uses the word namas, law, in Romans three different ways, meaning ceremonial law, moral law, and the or whole just, Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament law, the mosaic. No, the whole testament. Oh, okay. Sure, sure. Okay. Not like law and the prophets. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I mean, you right. think Romans three twenty one, the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, but the law and prophets testify to it. Like that's exactly. that, even that's two different things happening. There. And then, but I mean, as soon as you go there, I mean, I think Luther actually does that in here somewhere. I'm trying to remember where it was, but he's basically saying that it doesn't always mean it means different things, and I mean the moral law. Yeah, he does say that somewhere, doesn't he? Yeah, he says, I mean the moral law. When I'm talking about law gospel, I mean the moral law, ergo, Ten Commandments. Uh, he, he, I think yeah. he's nuanced. I think he got, he got it. And so that's where I kind of feel a little defensive of Luther going, now, you're not reading your Paul, you Old Testament scholars. Mm -hmm. You know, honestly. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's that one point yeah. where <clears throat> one of the responses is the ceremonial law is greater than the Decalogue, so they're both done away with. And he, you know, that's one of those places where he goes. Do you remember where that was in here? It's in there. Yeah. Um, We're taking a test, you can reread it. Yeah. Help me find it. I don't I wouldn't even remember. It's just like barely hanging in my memory. I mean, I, I know the place where he's talking about the distinction between the Decalogue and the law of circumcision. But I don't know if that is... Is it the same spot where he says only the law is eternal? He actually says those words. That's where I'm looking at right now. But I don't, I don't know if that is... 
um, the place that you're thinking of. I guess I lose some patience too for that sort of Old Testament argument, just because I think Paul is more nuanced than than that, and I think Luther is more nuanced. And then sometimes I think the Old Testament isn't as nuanced, um, because it's clear that Torah um, can mean a number of different things, whether it's commandment or teaching or you know guidance, various things. Um, and the typical argument there is that what butchers it is the Greek translation into namas, which would have been brought solely for the hearer into the realm of, you know, law as law, like we think about it. Oh, ironically, it's, it's, I think it's, it might be as well, maybe the very last page. It's but uh, yeah, there, at least he makes the distinction between moral law and Mosaic law on page 196. Just talking about the covenant with Abraham. This is the same as if someone said, this one was raised from the dead, although he was not really dead before. This is why the phrase 400 years before there was a law must be understood of the written or Mosaic law. For otherwise the law is born with us. And also Abraham was not entirely without the law because God said to him, walk before me and be sound. Um, so... Luther's making a distinction between moral and mosaic law, even right there. But I know he does it in so many other places. Uh, just like Paul does. Hmm. He's just interpreting Paul the way Paul is meaning to be read and understood. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one week or semester length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.